because I get to wrap up our series on love called The Way of Love. And then next week we get to go back to Acts, and we've only got a couple more weeks in Acts, actually, um, before we wrap up that series. But we wanted to take this break and talk about love because it's an important thing, and because um, right now, uh, being sort of an unusual time in life for all of us, when it seems like the things that we have most taken for granted are being totally like redefined, uh, it's very important that we stop and we take some time to kind of reevaluate, like re- revisit uh, the most important essential things. Uh, and, and love in the church specifically um, is what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 13, which is what we've been in. He's talking about how the people of the church are supposed to love each other. And we've kind of walked through uh, 1 Corinthians 13, this well-known passage on love, and talked each week about how really um, we have a tendency, I think, to, uh, to sometimes uh, do the worst at showing love to the people who are the closest to us because we take them for granted, people in our own families and even in our own church community. Um, this week, I want to talk about something that is very, very important, um, and it's kind of the foundation of all of what we've been talking about on love, but it's the kind of thing that you have to talk about it at the end, because if you talk about it in the beginning without an understanding of exactly what God is calling us to, it's easy to, to not see exactly uh, how much we need it and how big of a deal it is. And that is specifically this morning I want to talk about God's love. So this morning you get to take kind of a break from, you know, trying. You get, to, you get to go, you know what, this one isn't going to be about me and how I'm maybe supposed to act or how I'm supposed to live and what I'm supposed to do better or something like that so I could take a little bit of a break and I could just listen to Pastor Ed teach about God's love specifically. I want to look at Romans 8, and if you have a Bible, you can turn there. We're going to look at a couple of verses in Romans 8, um, sort of this well-known passage uh, where Paul talks. uh, Romans, the first um, 11 chapters of Romans, is Paul laying out the gospel, like in, in, in great detail. He's working through all of the points of, of the good news of the gospel, and, uh, and, it's, and then starting in, cha- in, verse, in chapter 12, he continues on to talk about like how we're supposed to live in light of the gospel. In chapter 8, he's kind of worked his way to needing to talk about this important thing, which is God's love. And um, this morning, as we kind of look at this, uh, that's what we have to talk about. Now, there's a question that I have to begin with, and the question is simply this. If you're driving along um, on the road and, uh, and maybe on the freeway and you drive by a billboard, I've seen these before, um, you drive by a billboard and the billboard says, God loves you, right? Uh, the billboard says, God loves you, what do you think when you see something like that, right? If you drive by and you see somebody holding up a sign that says, God loves you. Somebody has a bumper sticker on their car that says, God loves you, right? This is meant to be, obviously, like an incredibly profound, life-giving, world-altering, freeing, hope-filled message. God loves you. But I think it's safe to say that the overwhelming majority of people who read those words will not be overwhelmed. They'll be underwhelmed. Uh, I, I think as you drive by, uh, now I'm not saying that, that, that everybody who sees those words um, is, not, is not encouraged and filled with hope and joy because of them. But uh, the majority of people, I think, 
both people who, uh, who are non-believers, people who either don't believe in God, people who have a cynical view of love, um, or even people who are believers and go, yeah, I get it, like God loves me, thanks for the reminder, I didn't need it, right? Most people, when we see those words, God loves you, we just go, yeah, okay, so what, right? Well, what is that supposed to mean? Why would somebody take the time and the effort to like put that specific phrase, that specific thing out there for all of us to see as if it's somehow supposed to change us? What it means is this. It means that in, in all of this universe in which we live, if you were to uh, disappear, if you were to just uh, die, to go away, if you were to cease to exist, if something terrible were to happen to you that somebody would care about that, and that that somebody is God, that, that someone actually cares about the things that are happening to you. They don't just know about them, but they care about them. Not only does somebody care about them, but that somebody is a pretty big deal. This is meant to bring us like comfort, to make us feel better, maybe about our own value, about ourselves. Um, if you, if you had a bad day, if it was your birthday or, and, and, and it was the worst birthday that you've ever had, if you ended up in a coma for years and years and years, uh, would anybody care about those things? God would care about those things because God cares about you because God loves you. And this is supposed to be something that makes us feel good. Most, though, are like, yeah, but... But how does that supposed to make me feel good? Uh, you, you might be a person who's like, I honestly don't really care about how people feel about me. I don't need people to think about me, care about me, remember what's happening in my life in order for me to feel good about myself or something like that. Uh, a lot of people, a lot of men, uh, would say, oh yeah, that's how I am, right? In fact, if you, uh, if you talk to people in relationships, one of the things I had learned early on in, um, in, in marriage is uh, this passage in Ephesians, this verse that says, husbands love your wives, wives respect your husbands. Uh, you know, this idea that like there aren't a lot of guys, most guys would say, uh, I've never worried that you didn't love me to their wife. You know, it's not like I lose sleep over, like, does she love me? Does she love me? No, but my question is, does she respect me, right? And a lot of wives would say, um, I, I, I worry sometimes, you know, does he love me? That thing matters to me as much. Maybe even more than this thing called respect, right? Uh, and so a lot of guys would say, you know, oh, the love of God, love. I don't need to know that someone else or something else cares about me. I'm strong enough. I'm independent enough. I don't need that in my life. And that's Kind of an exaggeration. Uh, we do actually need that in our lives. Um, in fact, uh, the only people who truly don't care what anyone else thinks of the things that they do, we have a name for those people. They're called sociopaths. That's considered mental illness. That's considered something that is not, uh, uh, that's not right with a person. Because we actually would say that it's very detrimental, it's very unhealthy for somebody to just go through their life being like, I don't really care what people think about me, uh, how people feel about the stuff that I do. Uh, we've been going through this series on love, and it's mattered because we need love. We, we, we need to know that we matter, um, not just to ourselves. 
And, uh, and to know that God loves you is supposed to be this thing that absolutely changes everything about our lives. And yet, it's possible somehow to be a Christian, to believe that God loves you, and yet to not really experience any kind of a different life as a result of that. Well, what does it mean for God to love you specifically? Romans 8 Verses 31 through 39 says this. Actually, we're just going to look at a couple of those verses. Um, we'll look at verses 37 through 39 so that we can focus in on them. Romans 8, 37 through 39 says this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge to God's elect? He asks this question here, Paul does, in in Romans 8. uh, And the question that he asks is very simple. He says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? The first thing that it means when we say God loves you is this. It means God is for you. And what Paul says in Romans is that God's a big deal. And so when God's for you, that's such a big deal that it means that nothing else ultimately even really counts as being against you. What we would say is we would say that God's love means that we, first and foremost, have nothing to fear. That to truly believe that God loves me means that I don't have to be afraid of anything. Now, I think that it is a uh, mischaracterization to say that most people who believe in God believe in God out of fear. Um, I've heard that said before. Uh, it's the idea that, that, that the only thing that drives people to faith is, is, is being t- absolutely terrified of a life without a God. I, I have found just as many people terrified of the idea of what comes with God, uh, the belief in God, um, as uh, people that I've met who are afraid of being sort of alone in the universe without a God who cares about them. But Paul says very clearly that we don't have anything to fear. Why? Because he says, if God is for us, I don't, he says, who can be against us? I don't think it's pessimistic to say that early on in this life, we learn that we are opposed to things. Or better said, probably, there are things that are conspiring against us. Things that are opposed to us. Things that are going to be out there in life that are going to be keeping us from flourishing in our lives, from doing well in our lives may start out as a, as a bully on the playground. It may start out as physical pain and suffering. It may start out as, as you looking in the mirror and being disappointed with what you see looking back at you, thinking, I'm never going to be able to do much in life with what I've been given. It may start out as uh, parents who don't actually love you the way that parents are supposed to love their children. It may start out as people who don't actually care about you and, and, and raise you in the way that people are supposed to do those things. And as we grow and we continue to see, uh, we, we, we have this idea reinforced, the older we get, the longer that we live, that there seem to be things that are kind of against us. 
As we get older, it turns into entire groups of people that are against us. It turns into not having enough of the things that you need. It turns into uh, the things that give you pleasure, not being there when you need them. Or finding out that the very things that give you pleasure ultimately can still lead to your downfall. It's things like getting old and things like being sick. It is things ultimately like the thing that seems to, to sort of haunt everybody, which is this idea that death is there for all of us. There's sickness and strife, the selfishness of other people. There is racism, there is sexism, there are broken families, there are deep regrets that we will live with and carry around with us in our lives. We, we live these lives of ours, it seems, opposed by so many different things. I mean, we have a phrase, that we say there's only two things that are guaranteed in life, death and taxes. Are either of those two things good things? No. Our, our very simple definition of the only two things you can really count on in life, it seems, are two things that are bad. I don't think it's pessimistic to say that we live these lives of ours knowing that there are things that are opposed to us. We eventually find out that one of the few things that we actually can control, though, is who we let around us and how we choose to give to those people. We discover that the things that we ought to really fear in life, the things that we are ultimately going to be brought down by, are most likely not going to be guns and bombs. They're ultimately not going to be landing gear that doesn't come down the way it's supposed to on the airplane that we're on, car accidents. We are brought up to fear not just those things, but what people can do to us. We are brought up to fear the terrible things that can happen to us when we choose to let the wrong people in to our lives. Why were the Pharisees so upset at Jesus for eating with sinners and tax collectors? Because those sinful people posed a great threat to the things that the Pharisees found their safety in, which was being pure and being good enough. And their fear was wrapped up in being polluted and therefore being against God. Why was Jonah angry that God wanted to save the Ninevites? Because these people were literally killing his own people. And he took security knowing that at the very least he was on the right side of things with God and they were on the wrong side. You see, we live these lives of ours definitely being careful about the things that we think will cause us harm and will hurt us in our lives. And yet God himself is unquestionably the most powerful thing in existence, the most powerful force in all of existence. The most powerful thing in existence is God, and God is personal. God is a being, and God loves and so to know that that God who is more powerful than anything else that we will ever encounter or anything else that any people will ever do to us loves his children, loves those who follow him and trust in him and believe in him. To know that puts all these other things into perspective. And it means that nothing else can really be against you. God's love puts you into a place of safety and security by virtue of the fact that he is your 
defense. He is your strength. He is your advocate. So because of this, what Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us, right? A reminder from a person who has had virtually everything go against him, it seems, in life. We, we aren't safe because all of the threats and the enemies and those other things have been taken away. We have a big problem with that. If we had a choice in how things worked, we would say that's the way that God would make us safe. That's the way that God would protect us as children, is that he would do that by removing all of those things that scare us, freak us out, and can hurt us. And because he doesn't do it that way, we question this. We go, is God really for me? Can I really be okay in the end? I think I still have things to fear. Because we're still dealing with these things, it seems, right? It's like, okay, well, if God loves me, then why does it seem like for a Christian, maybe, for somebody who believes in him and even fears him and, and loves him, then, then why is it that I still experience these things just as much as other people? Because these are not ultimately the things that we must fear. That experiencing these things does not, is not what destroys us and brings us destruction. It's not what ultimately does uh, take away life from us. Because the true thing that we must fear, that we have to fear, um, is that God himself would be against us. You see, there is a huge difference in the Bible, there is a huge difference in reality between how God views a person who believes in Jesus, trusts in Jesus, and a person who doesn't. The Bible has totally different ways of talking about those people. Because when God looks upon someone who trusts in Jesus, he sees Jesus. And as a result of that, he has love for that person. He is for that person. Even the very sin that might come up in that person's life again and again, he sees more as a father would see a disease or a sickness that is harming their child and he grieves and mourns over it, rather than uh, we would experience the wrath of God. Like the very wrath of God that the Bible says is poured out upon sinfulness is not something that comes out upon those who are his children, who trust in Jesus. We don't have to fear because God loves us and he is for us. Ultimately, even though these things that are so scary and loud are there in our lives, we don't have to fear them. I mean, this is, uh, this is, like, uh, this is like when I'm vacuuming in my living room and my dog comes out and is just terrified of the vacuum. Uh, I've had two types of dogs. I've had dogs that are terrified and freaked out and run away. I've had dogs that attack the vacuum because they're freaked out. And now I have a dog who literally sleeps in front of the vacuum and you have to like run into him with the vacuum to get him to roll over and then vacuum under him and then he'll roll back over. He is completely indifferent to the vacuum. And, and it's funny to watch a dog, like, freak out over something like that. Like, it's this terrifying thing. Just because what? It's a big, loud noise. It's a bunch of flashing lights, right? Paul says, let me remind all of you that because of God's love, that means that you don't have anything to ultimately fear. But he goes on and he says, uh, he says this. He says, no, in all these things... Sorry, I actually did read the beginning of the passage back then. This is verse 37. Um, 
He says, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He goes on, you see, to say that not only is the benefit of God's love that he is for us, which means we have nothing to fear. He goes on to point out, as detailed as he can, by the way, listing off all of the things that can ultimately that, that give us fear. Because why are we afraid of these things? We're afraid of them because they separate us from the things that we care about. We're afraid of them because what it is that we can lose because of these things. And what he says ultimately is this. He says that none of those things are able to separate us from the love of Christ, of God, and Christ Jesus our Lord. What he's saying here is that God's love also means that we have nothing to lose. So not only does somebody who is loved by God have nothing to truly fear, but they have nothing ultimately to lose. Because the things that we can lose are not ultimately the things that are the source of our life. The most important things you cannot lose is what we are assured through God's love. When I was a child, my mother and my father gave me the most important things that I needed. They gave me love that was unconditional. They gave me shelter. Uh, they gave me security in knowing that no matter what happened, I could always count on them to love me and to be there for me. Now, these were not always the things that I thought I needed. And because of that, while my parents were providing these things for me, I was busy complaining about not having more Lego sets. Saying to them, if you loved me, you would give me those things. Because the nature of love and of even maturing is that I could not even fully appreciate how much they were giving to me and what that meant for me in my security in my life until I got older. And I looked back and I realized, man, so much of who I am uh, that is good is good because of the fact that I didn't have to worry about not having those things, right? It is the very ability that we have to take for granted the most important things in life that gives us that security, Sadly, one of the marks, it seems, of a truly loved child is their sort of casual ability to take for granted those things and to whine and complain about all the other things that they think they want and that they think that they need. In order for me to be formed into some sort of a healthy, functioning person, uh, I depended upon my parents' giving me these vital things and allowing me the luxury of not having to be afraid and worried about not having those things. God gives us, assures us of our security in the most important things that we will ever have. But because we have these things, we take them for granted. We lament not having other things. As we drive by and see those words, God loves you, we immediately are, are struck, many of us, by just taking these things for granted. Taking the very fact that God loves us for granted and all that it means for us and maybe thinking, well, if he loved me, he would give me this. If he loved me, he would let me keep and hang on to that. 
because we believe that those are the things that bring us life. The Bible's really clear. The things that bring you life are the things that you do not have to be afraid of losing in Christ and in God himself. This means that we are safe, and yet we don't feel safe. It means that we are provided for, and yet we are prone to not feel provided for. It means that we don't have to fear losing, and yet we will fear losing. This seems to be the state that so many of us live in. But God's love cannot only be something that kind of saves us from losing stuff, right? That, that keeps us from being afraid of stuff. Because that would uh, that'd be a pretty limited form of love. No, the greatest thing that God's love does is what comes next. It is, it is the thing that um, his love gives us and assures us. And it's where this connects with what we've been talking about with love. Because ultimately what we see in God's love for us is that it is, it is, it is the only real source of any real kind of love that we could ever have. That without God's love, we are not capable of truly loving others. We read about this in 1 John chapter 4, which has some of the most uh, famous and well-known words on love in, in all of the Bible. We read this in 1 John 4, verse 19 through 21. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. What is being said here about love is this. It is that if you have been loved by God, meaning if you are his child, if you believe in Christ, if you are a Christian, and if you now are one that you can say, I know that God loves me and I have experienced his love and it is the source of my life and my hope. If you know God's love, then because of that, you cannot help but love your brother. In the very same way that the Bible makes it very clear that if you can't forgive your brother, then the question is, have you truly experienced God's forgiveness? Not to question your salvation and make you freak out, but literally the question of, do you think that you're a Christian because of all the good things that you've done? Or do you think that you're a Christian because you've been forgiven. If so, the gratefulness of that, the joy that comes from that will lead you to a place of being able to forgive other people. And if you cannot find it in yourself to forgive other people, then the question that the New Testament authors pose to the early church is, have you really experienced God's forgiveness? In the same way, um, as we've been talking about love in this series, and we've been talking about what it means to really love one another, and it seems pretty daunting, it seems pretty overwhelming, the question is, how in the world do you do something like that? How do you love that way? And the way that you love is you have been loved by God. He does not expect us to do this on our own. Ultimately, uh, you know, uh, over the summer, uh, we went with family to Black Butte Ranch, and for a day, we, we took kind of a trip, and we went to see the headwaters of the Metolius River. 
And uh, it's incredible to go there because, you know, most, our understanding of most rivers and how rivers form is pretty simple. Uh, Snowmelt from mountains kind of gathers, you know, down into gullies and they form streams and then those streams join and they form bigger streams and then those streams form uh, rivers, right? That's how rivers happen. Well, not always. There are some rivers that are formed through springs and through underground springs and essentially pop up out of nowhere. And if you go to the headwaters of the Metolius River, someone had told me to go there and we went there, and it is literally a great river that begins from underground. Uh, and, and the belief is that like there's all this water that gets forced under Black Butte, this big, this sort of mountain, this small mountain, and, and, and it goes throughout the, all these cracks and crevices, and then the pressure um, of the water underneath is greater than the air pressure in the atmosphere outside of it, and as a result, it just comes out of the ground, and there's a river right there. I cannot think of a better way to understand the way that love is supposed to work in our lives and yet the way that it does work in the lives of those who don't know God. Because the way that our world understands love, the reason why when we talk about love and how we treat people in the church and how we treat our families, the reason it feels overwhelming to most of us is because our understanding of where love comes from in our life is still uh, the understanding of the world. It is the understanding of a person who doesn't uh, see how God's love is the ultimate source of that in our lives. You see, uh, the world would, would we, we believe growing up, we believe as we get mature in our lives and try to love people, that the way it works is that other love feeds into our lives through other people. And that the more that that happens, it forms sort of this river, and then we're able to, it kind of flows out of that thing. But if there wasn't stuff at the beginning of that gathering together, not just from one source, but lots of different sources, right? Lots of different people in our lives that love us and are gracious and kind and caring towards us and all these things we've talked about then we can't ultimately have the source of love to give. But because of that, we're also limited in how much we can love. We're limited by the way that these people love us. And yet what the Bible says is that the reason you love your brother, the reason that you love people is the same reason that you forgive people. It is because God first loved you. That this spring in your life, that this water in your life is like a spring that just pops up from underground. It starts out strong, and it is endlessly supplied. Uh, w- rivers that are supplied by underground springs are they're, uh, they're the most constant in temperature. They're also the most constant in terms of their, the level of their water throughout the year because what they're fed by d- isn't affected by all these other factors. Uh, I think when Ellie and I were in premarital counseling, um, our counselor got up uh, to the whiteboard and you know, he, he drew for us these diagrams, and he said, I want to explain to you guys something called the love tank. He said, and this is a very, you know, counseling type thing to hear, obviously. He goes, each one of us has a love tank, and, uh, and that love tank is filled by, by people and relationships and things in our lives, and the more love that, that we have in that tank, the more love we're able to give, and, uh, and if you haven't been loved very much, if you haven't experienced enough love, then, then you'll be pretty limited in what you'll give. You won't be a very loving person, and so, you know, you guys probably are coming from these two different lives, these two different families. You guys don't have the same, maybe, kind of amount of that, the same, the same love tanks, and, and that affects the way you love each other. And the whole point of it was to say, it doesn't mean that, that, that the way this person loves you means you're that lovable, you're that worthy of love. It just means that's what they're capable of, right? We literally view love as a, like, 
uh, as a resource that has to be replenished. Otherwise, we run out. And like any resource, if we know that it's never-ending, then we have to be careful with it. We treat love like a physical commodity. And so our ability, my ability to show love to you and other people is directly measured by my ability to get it in the first place. I can be patient and kind. I can avoid being resentful and and not envious uh, as long as I've got some of that to give. I treat the way that I love people like I treat morning coffee, right? Yeah, as long as I get that, I'm going to be good, right? As long as I've got what I need, then you can count on me to do the right thing. But if not, don't come knocking and don't come asking me for love. I mean, this is fundamentally the way that our world understands love. That if there is not some source of water pouring into that thing, then it will be dried up and you will not be able to give. And so we look at all the commands and expectations of love and we say, yeah, but what if I can't give that? What if I can't do that? What if, what if when I start out my day, I start out my week, I start out my experience in the church, what if I'm not able to have that much love to give to people in abundance? I mean, the life I've lived, the relationships I have, the things that are going on in 2020, you can't possibly why in the world would you guys choose now to talk about us being even more loving to each other when we're all running on empty? Because that's not the way that love works for the Christian. But we treat love like a commodity, and in the exact same way, we think that we go through famine, we go through drought. Sorry, honey, it looks like the harvest hasn't been very good this year. Looks like love's going to cost a whole lot more per pound. Looks like it's not going to be as cheap as it was last year. Sorry, kids, the old love mine just uh, turned out the last piece of love ore, and as a result of that, it looks like uh, there's, there's no more love. It looks like the last barrel is out there. The, I don't know if you guys heard on the news, the old love refinery just blew up, and we're not getting you know barrels of love anymore, and because of that, we can't drive our love cars on our love road. See, I could go, I could do this thing all day. I've been thinking about it all week long. Sorry, church, it looks like it's been a drought year. Temperatures are up. Thank you, Al Gore. And because of that, we have less love to give and less love to depend on. And so 2020 is just going to be a year with a little bit less love. We're going to be rationing it out, okay? No washing your cars with love, right? Just water once every couple weeks with love. Your servers are no longer going to be bringing you complimentary love to your table. You've got to ask for it. You know it's 2020. We're all in that kind of a mood, right? We can't just be giving this stuff away. It's not exactly like we've gotten much in the beginning. We're dealing with maybe what feels like the biggest love shortage ever in the world around us. And if love really is a commodity, if it's something that I can only give out when I receive, then we are in real trouble. But that isn't the way that it works for the Christian. Because if you are a child of God, if you are a believer in Jesus, then God's love means that you cannot help but love others because that source is a renewable source. God will continue to love you, and the more that you see that, the more that you are changed by that, and the more you live in that, the more you will be able to love other people. You won't run out. It won't run dry. We are very afraid 
of what will happen if we put ourselves out there and actually try to love other people this way without what we need to give us strength, to replenish us? What about the people that are, that are close to me, right? Because when I, when I can't help but love, then I'm going to run out. And, and, and what we read about here in 1 John is that we love first because He first loved us, right? We love because He first loved us. Why do we love? How do we love? Because He first loved us. And we cannot help but love our brother, which is okay because we can't run out of this thing. The way of love is a very windy road. We said that in the beginning of this series. It is an infuriatingly windy path. It's not the wrong road. In fact, it is the only way to get to where it is that we need to go. And as much as we want to get off that road and take a shortcut, the road, the way of love that we're called to be on is one that takes patience, it takes kindness above all else, and it uses up a whole lot of gas. I mean, even if you just try heading down that road, and all you have to go on is the love that other people have shown you. If you say to yourself, then if this is how the church is called to love, then that means that uh, if I am not feeling in this place filled up by love, then that means that I can't give it out. And that must mean that I have to be somewhere else. If I don't feel in this family that I live in, that I'm a part of, that I'm given enough love to be able to give love back, then I must be in the wrong family. That is a fundamental misunderstanding of how love works for the believer. The truth is, People in the church are able to love each other to no end because we will not run out, and it isn't because all the people around us are so great that they fill us up with love. It's not because the church is so great that it fills us up with love. It's not because our family is so great they fill us up with love. It's not because our marriage and our children or our job or the fact that we finally get to do the thing that we're excited about or passionate about doing or anything like that fills us up with love. It's because God is the source of love for us and because we cannot run out of it. So then it comes down to what everything always seems to come down to, which is, if I have this thing, then how do I actually experience this thing as though I had it, right? If, if this is true, if the love that God has for me is so great, and yet I don't feel this way, I don't feel these things that you're talking about, Ed, then how do I get there? How do I feel those things? Well, you ask yourself, you, you, you look inside and you ask yourself first, what is conspiring against me? What is the thing, what are the things that I'm afraid of? What are the things that are against me? What do I worry about and focus on? What have I called out to be my enemy? What are the things that I think are going to rob me of what matters the most in my life? What group of people is it? What cause is it? What problem in the world out there is it? What of all the things going on right now are the things that are really the root of what's going on? If it's, if it's something that I think can, can somehow actually defeat me, actually defeat this life of mine, then I misunderstand the power of God's love because if God is for us, 
then nothing can be against us that ultimately can bring us harm. Now, what that also means is this. It means that we maybe shouldn't be so quick to expect this kind of love from non-Christians. Because the Bible tells us that if a person is not a follower of Jesus, if they are not a child of God, then they are not receiving this source of love. And if they are not receiving this never-ending source of love, then how can I expect them to love me that way? In fact, when I look into the world outside of the church, I ought to expect it to be a place where there isn't going to be love for me. Expect it to be a place that has a transactional view of relationships and, and, and everything about the way we interact with each other. Rather than be constantly disappointed by what I see when I look out there, I should not be surprised by what I see. Because I should understand that rather than, oh, all those things are, are what's wrong with the world, the only thing that truly matters is that the reason things are the way they are is because there are not more people who believe in Jesus, who are depending on God's love, who have the ability to give this kind of love. If we want the world to be filled with love, if we want things to be better, if we want people to treat each other better, then people have to know Jesus. If they don't, then God is against them. If God is for us and he is against someone else, then is there anything greater that I can do to love someone than to bring Christ to them so that he can be for them, even if they don't realize that they need that? You ask yourself, what are the things that I think are against me and do I believe that these things are bigger than God? You ask yourself, what am I afraid of losing? Because if, if, if God's love means that I don't have anything to lose, that I ultimately need to fear, then what is it that I'm afraid of losing? How much of our lives do we live in fear of losing the things that we care about? Because these are the things that bring us joy. These are the things that bring us life. The love of God is such that we don't have to live with that kind of fear. And so if you want to experience God's love in your life, if you want to actually let it give you the power to do these things, then you ask yourself, what is it that I'm afraid of losing? And why have I let that become bigger in my mind than God himself? And I think the last thing that we ask ourselves is, is, where do I think the love in my life is coming from and, and, and why do I think that I don't have enough to give? Can I think of instances in which I've loved too much? It's just been too much. I've loved and run out. Because it isn't like money and it isn't like electricity and it isn't like fossil fuels and it isn't like clean water. We don't actually run out of this stuff if the source of it is God in our lives. The reason we talk about this now and not at the beginning is that it's almost like we have to have a real sense of exactly how hard it is to love each other, how much we're called to, in order to understand that we have got to have a completely different kind of source for that love. The sad reality is that most Christians, like in everything else, we try to do the things the Bible talks about, but 
we have all the same ways as everybody else about being filled up with life and with joy and with love. We, we are living for all the same things. We are finding love in all the same things. We're afraid of losing all the same things. We're, we're conquered by and defeated by and plagued by all of the same things as those who don't love Christ. We're just trying to do the things that we read about in the Bible. And that is a recipe for failure, for being overwhelmed, for being discouraged. It is no, it is no surprise that there are so many bitter, weary people in the church who say, when I hear that Jesus is here to bring us an easy burden, that his yoke is easy, that his burden is light, I think that couldn't be further from the truth. When the source of these things is God's love, then the yoke that he brings really is easy and his burden is light. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for the fact that you do not call us to live these lives in a way that is impressive to you, that we have nothing to prove to you, Father. Lord, uh, it is a very unpopular thing, I think, maybe even in the church, to say that your wrath is poured out upon sinners and that your love is, is given freely to those who have life in your Son. That, that Paul says in Romans 8 that, uh, that these things, that we have nothing to fear, that we can't be separated, he says to the elect, this is true. That means to those who are saved. It does not mean to everybody, Lord. Lord, um, your love is for your children and not everyone who lives is your child, Lord. We become your child when we become aligned with Jesus, when we have faith in Jesus, when we trust in Jesus, that is when your love comes into our life. God, would you help us, Lord, to rely upon you and what you give and to actually experience the freedom that comes from you, God. God, it's in your name that we pray. Amen.